The Holy Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ according to Mark. Glory to you, Lord Christ. Jesus said, When you see the desolating sacrilege set up where it ought not to be, let the reader understand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let him who is on the housetop not go down, nor enter his house, to take anything away. And let him who is in the field not turn back to take his mantle. And alas, for those who are with child, and for those who give suck in those days, pray that it may not happen in winter. For in those days there will be such tribulation as has not been from the beginning of the creation which God created until now, and never will be. And if the Lord had not shortened the days, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect whom he chose, he shortened the days. And then if anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ, or look, there he is, do not believe it. False Christs and false prophets will arise and show signs and wonders to lead astray, if possible, the elect. But take heed, I have told you all things beforehand. The Gospel of the Lord. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of all our hearts be always acceptable in your sight. For Lord Jesus Christ, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Amen. It, is, um, it is a joy to be with you um, here this evening. It's been a joy to just um, have time with, with Steve and Lindsay and with a, a number of the, the leadership of the church in these last few days. And I'm just always encouraged when I come and see what the Lord has been doing. Um, and it fills me with joy. My, my wife, Sally, she sends her love. She could not make this trip. We are hoping um, next time that she could. So I'm going to ask you to do something. It's a little bit dangerous when somebody's standing in the pulpit and it's, it's evening. But um, I want you to close your eyes for a moment. Just close your eyes. And I want you to think back and remember a time when you were, like, really angry. Like, not just annoyed, but really angry. What happens when you're angry? Your pulse gets faster, you start to maybe speak louder um, and faster, and, and you, you feel this thing just building up inside of you. And, and sometimes it actually feels good when you're angry, right? It feels, it feels that there is actually something that feels right in that moment. However, later, Maybe we don't always feel that. You can open your eyes. Um, sometimes uh, it feels good to be angry in the moment, but we look back and it doesn't feel good later because we realize that maybe my response was out of proportion to what actually took place and what happened. Or, or maybe I realized that, that I thought I was angry because something wasn't right, but, but actually, I was just angry because it was more selfish. It was something that wasn't right for me, which is not necessarily the same as something being not right. Or, or maybe we look back and we realize that in our anger, we lose control and, and we say or do things that hurt others. So there is, a, there is a just anger. There is a righteous anger. But I just say we need to confess that we hardly ever get that right, right? That, that our motivations aren't always right. And maybe our actions, how we live that anger out, aren't always right. Now, in the scriptures that we have today, um, 
what you find in, in scriptures that were sent to me are, are really a manifestation of God's anger. I mean, you, you hear again and again the things of the wrath of God. So you have in Daniel chapter uh, 12, there will be a time of distress, which has not happened from the beginning of the nations until then. So there's uh, unparalleled distress that is going to be happening. You have in the gospel reading in Matthew chapter 13, uh, verses 14 through 19, when you see the abomination that causes desolation standing uh, where it does not belong, let the reader understand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let no one who is on the housetop go down or enter the house to take anything out. Let no one in the field go back to get their cloak. How dreadful it will be in those days for pregnant women and nursing mothers. Pray that you will not, this will not take place in the winter because those days will be days of distress unequaled from the beginning when God created the world until now and never to be equaled again. Or you have in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 31, the very first verse of the scripture we have today, it is a dreadful thing to fall into the hands of a living God. Now, some of you might be sort of brazing, okay, this is the, the hellfire and brimstone uh, sermon is coming, but, but you also might be thinking like, what is all this negativity? I mean, this is, this is sort of a downer. What is the good news in this? And, and actually, when Steve sent me the scriptures, I thought, you know, Psalm 16 would be great to preach on. And actually, we will get to Psalm 16 at the end, but I realized we can't actually get to Psalm 16 until we walk through and deal with the things that these verses raise up. Because God's anger is not bad news. Do you know what bad news would be? It would be a God who is incapable of anger. Bad news would be a God who is apathetic in the face of evil. Bad news would be a God who didn't care. A God who was not willing to protect the beloved. See, wrath is not the opposite of love. Wrath is the opposite of apathy. So think of it this way. Suppose um, somebody you deal with, it could be your spouse, it could be a child, it could be an elderly grandparent, um, and, and somebody brutally beats them and robs them. What is the proper response? Yeah, whatever. No. The proper response is that you would have an anger against the one who had hurt your beloved. Now this is... This is an understanding that we begin to see that, that God's wrath actually shows that he cares for the beloved. He will not put up with injustice. His wrath, his anger, is not something that is meant to intimidate us and frighten us into obedience. His wrath is not incompatible, uh, incompatible with love. In fact, it, it rises out of his love. So to understand this, we need to, we need to go back and understand what went wrong. What things would it be like if things had not gone wrong? We need to go back and look at creation. So if you look in Genesis, you see that, that creation is actually out of this overwhelm of God's love and God's generosity. And in that, all that is created is actually something that, that exposes and shows forth God's love and God's beauty. And all these things that were created were meant to point back to the God of love, the God of beauty, to point back to his, his, uh, the glory of who, who he is and his creation. And so you find that, um, 
that in the days of creation, the thing that's echoed again and again is, and it is good. Now, if you look at good, if you study that through Scripture, what you find is that, that good doesn't just mean something that's morally good. It can, it can be that. But it actually carries with it the sense of abundance. It carries with it a sense of, of beauty and of delight and of generosity. And there is something of this extravagance of God that is marked by this it is good. There's the extravagant goodness of God that is in creation. And then you have uh, the sort of the pinnacle of this, um, of this creation. We look back, right? I mean, we can look and you can see the mountains around here and you think, man, there is a beauty that we see in creation, right? We can see that. But we also have to understand that we're actually looking at a fallen world through fallen eyes. Yes, there's a glory and a beauty there, but it is so much less than what was there in the beginning. And this is true as we look at one another. So on the days of creation, you have it is good, it is very good, uh, or it is good, it is good, it is good, it comes. And then you have in Genesis chapter 1, verse 27, so God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. So we were created as God's image, which really means his, his presence and his glory in creation. And when we were created, God's response was like, yeah, it's okay, it'll do for now. No, this is, this is very good. I mean, it speaks something to the, the wonder of what was meant to be in the beginning. It speaks to the glory that God had invested in us in the beginning, which is why you find in Psalm 8 and verse 5, it says that, most translations will say you made him, speaking about us, humans, you made him a little bit lower than the heavenly beings, crowned them with glory and honor. So what we need to understand is that this picture of who we are, we are those who are crowned with glory and honor. And the text literally says you made them a little bit lower than God. But we get a little uncomfortable with that, so we change it to heavenly beings. But there was this glory and this, this life that we were brought into and created with that was beyond what we can imagine. There was no shame in the beginning. There was no posing, none of the things that you do to, to try to give a picture of who you think you should be so that people will like you and affirm you. Adam and Eve were fully themselves and fully at ease with being themselves, which also meant they were fully at ease with each other. This is why you have in verse 25 of Genesis 2, Adam and his wife were both naked and they felt no shame. Because there was no shame. So there was this perfect communion with God and they had a perfect communion with one another. Their lives were actually marked by rest and by joy. And when you read the accounts in creation, you see that, that they did not lack anything. And then the serpent comes and tempts them to lack. He comes with a temptation that... that um, you know, this God that you know, I think he's holding something good back from you. The temptation is that, that really God is not good and he is not loving you fully or not loving you well because there is this thing you can have that he has not given you. You can be like God. In other words, you can be the source of your own life. Now, the thing that we need to understand is that we look at that and say, um, Okay, this is wrong, they shouldn't do it, but we have to look on the other side that, that actually Adam and Eve could not be more like God than they already were. 
They were made in his image, a little bit lower than God. And yet the, the enemy comes and he tempts them that God is holding something back, that he's holding this great treasure back. In other words, that he's not good, that he doesn't love you fully. And so what happens? They take and eat. And in that taking and eating, they are rejecting God and they're rejecting his love. They are rejecting his unrelenting generosity. The language you find throughout Scripture, but especially in the Old Testament, that, that is used to speak about this is, is, that, um, is the language of adultery. So if you think about this, if you found out your spouse was committing adultery, you would be angry, and rightly so. But how much more would a holy God be angry who loves us perfectly and loves us without any sin? But it's also more than just rejecting God and rejecting his love. In our rebellion, because we were those who had a stewardship of all creation, in our rebellion, the good that God created becomes corrupted by sin. And we see it in our lives uh, because now we are defined by sin and shame and death. We feel guilty. Why? Because we are guilty. I mean, this is, this is what we are born into. The image of God that we were created in in the beginning now becomes corrupted by sin. It is not erased, but it has now become corrupted. There is no part of who we are that is free from sin infecting and, and, and ruling in our lives. So there is actually, because of that, this, this continual rejection of God. We live out Genesis 3 again and again. And we might not even recognize it. Every time we look to our success, our achievements, our affirmation, our relationships, the, the resources we have to have some sense of worth and identity, that is rejecting God. Because we were meant to draw that from Him. And if we reject God and His love, then we end up rejecting also those who are made in His image. You see it right away in Genesis chapter 3. Because when the Lord asked Adam, did you eat, what does Adam do? He throws Eve under the bus, right? It was the woman. This was just like right before, oh, bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. I am so excited. Did you eat? It was the woman. It was her fault. You gave her to me. It's your fault. And then we find right after that in Genesis chapter 4, Cain um, rises up and out of jealousy because Abel's offering had received favor. And he thinks that God's favor is somehow limited. He rises up and he kills his brother. We live in a world gone crazy. We live in a world bent on destroying itself. Now, that doesn't mean that, that good is completely absent. I'm not saying that at all. We took and we ate from the tree of the knowledge of good and of evil. So we have a capacity for good. We can do things that, that, that create beauty and promote life. And we also have a capacity for evil. We have a capacity to do things that, that corrupt beauty and destroy life. And the reality is that, that because of sin affecting every part of who we are, even the good things that we do are corrupted by our sinfulness. 
So we, we need to see that, that even the things that we do, that we think are good, they still carry something of our fallenness. The picture that you have in the Old Testament especially is that sin is a contagious disease that corrupts everything that it touches. So we might think, you know, we're pretty good people uh, living pretty good lives. But we're not actually looking at it from the from the right perspective. Yeah, I, I'm not perfect, but you know, I'm basically pretty good. Because we don't see the glory that was in the beginning, and we don't see how far we have fallen from the glory that God had intended in the beginning. We don't understand that sin destroys and defaces what God made as good. This is why God has wrath. Because his beloved creation and his most highly beloved us are, be, are defaced and destroyed by sin. If there was no wrath of God to be rescued from, there's no need for a rescue. And the cross of Jesus is superfluous. If there is no wrath of God, we would never be free from sin. In our lives or the sin of the, in the world around us. God's wrath rises out of his desire to protect his beloved from being destroyed. So God is at work to restore all things. And, and this restoration of all things requires that every evil and every sin is actually dealt with. That, that there cannot be this restoration of all things if there is not evil and sin actually being dealt with. If there is no wrath of God, then there is no new heavens and new earth. Every sin needs to be dealt with. Every evil needs to be dealt with. Everything that seeks to corrupt and destroy the beloved needs to be dealt with. The problem we have is that the beloved are being destroyed, and we are the ones who destroy so if you destroy the thing that's destroying the beloved, you destroy the beloved. So the only answer is for God to enter into our darkness, to destroy it from the inside. So this is why Jesus came. He came and he took on our nature. He came as one of us that he could take the wrath of God against our sin and against our rebellion. On the cross of Jesus, the full wrath of God was poured out. The full wrath of God against every sin ever committed. This is the, the, the wrath of God that we see that are talked about in these scriptures on the last day, on the day of judgment. This is not a new wrath. This is the work of the, uh, the wrath of God on the cross being worked out. It's not that God pulls out all of his wrath and, and then he gets a little upset later and so he does it again. The full wrath of God was poured out on Jesus on the cross. And this is why Jesus says, it is finished. He does not say, it is half done. The wrath of God, this is the, the, the work of judgment. It's what brings about actually our salvation. See, this is... Uh, this is why we see that those who are united in Christ, uh, that the wrath has already passed because it has fallen on him. And when we are united to him, we have passed through that wrath. This is why you have, even in Daniel, 
It is saying that there is going to be a time of distress which has not happened from the beginning of the nations until then. But at that time, your people, everyone whose name is found written in the book, will be delivered. So we are born alienated from God. We are born in rebellion against God. We are born as those who deserve nothing but the wrath of God. And because of Jesus coming as one of us and taking the wrath in our place, our names can be written in the book of life. We are saved from the wrath of God by the wrath of God. We are saved from the wrath of God falling on us by the wrath of God falling on Jesus. And that is our redemption. And that is what brings about the restoration of all things. It's not just that, that we miss this punishment, but that Jesus took it, but that then allows God to make us new creations. That we are those who are now sons and daughters of the King of Kings. That our identity and our worth is grounded in the work of the cross. Not because we earn it, not because we do good things, but simply because of his mercy. In the Gospel of Luke, um, the parallel passage to the Mark uh, passage, it says in Luke 21 and verse 28, it says this, When you see these things are about to happen, stand up and lift up your head, because your day of redemption is near. There's actually this understanding that there is, um, that this is not bad news, that there is an expansiveness. This is our redemption. This is God about to make all things new, the new heavens and the new earth. And it's only when we understand that the wrath of God is not bad news. It can be hard news, but it's not bad news. Can we actually go and look at things like Psalm 16 and begin to make sense and understand the expansiveness that is there? Psalm 16, verse 5. Lord, you alone are my portion and my cup. You make my lot secure. You are my portion. Is, is the word for an inheritance. You are my allotment. He's saying, God, my inheritance is you. And this is speaking in the sense of not a future inheritance, but what, what he is inheriting now. You are my inheritance. When he says you are my cup, um, the cup in scripture, it, it is a picture, uh, it points to your destiny. Think of what Jesus said to the sons of Zebedee when they wanted to take the, the, the places of authority and position in the kingdom. He says, can you drink the cup from which I'm going to drink? In other words, can you take the destiny that I'm going to take? Or Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, Father, if it may, can this cup pass from me? So when he's saying that you are my cup, he's saying that you are my destiny that you are my inheritance now and you are my destiny, you are where I am heading and I know that you are good. There is this understanding that, that there is something that I receive now, that he is my allotment now and he is my destiny in the future. And that's not just a, a far distant future, it's you are my destiny tomorrow, you are my destiny today, you are my destiny later today, you are my destiny in the next hour, in the next minute and in the next second. And he is good, which means goodness is our destiny. He says, you make my lot secure. That's saying that um, this goodness, this expansiveness, actually doesn't depend on us. That is good news, right? 
if this expansiveness of God depended on me, I would lose it in a second. If we live as if this expansiveness that we are called into depends on us, then we will narrow down the boundaries of life to there's something that we can just manage on our own. We live then in a smaller story, and we also end up, because we're not trusting in God, we've, we've made things what we can do and what we can manage, we, we enter into a life of striving. Verse 6, the boundary lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Surely I have a delightful inheritance. So again, this is looking at my allotment or my inheritance. Uh, that my, this is my part. He's saying that, that they have fallen for me in pleasant places. This has to do with pleasure. Um, that character of the faith that, that, that can be there, that, that faith is somehow drab and colorless and austere, does not speak the heart of God and his desires for us. This is actually just speaking about pleasure, that this inheritance is something that is filling me with pleasure. If you look at it, if you think of, of the boundary lines, all you can do is you can look at Ephesians 3, 18 and 19, where it talks about how high and wide and deep and long is the love of God. See, these are our boundary lines, the height and the depth and the width and the length of God's love for us. It surpasses all knowledge that is beyond our ability to know and yet is ours, filled with all the fullness of God. The delightful inheritance, it's better said that this is an inheritance of delight. It's a place of knowing and experiencing God's delight in us. So this is what it is to be redeemed, that we can know that we are his children, we're sons and daughters of the King of Kings, that we are the ones that he delights in. This is why John can say in 1 John chapter 3 and verse 1, Oh, what great love the Father has lavished on us, that we should be called children of God, and that is what we are. We have an inheritance of delight. When we don't walk in that truth, then guilt and fears and shame and insecurity and pride and our own abilities begin to define us and they close in around us and they shrink us until we feel trapped. This inheritance of delight, it comes because God loves us enough to deal with sin. It comes because he loves us enough to deal with our sin and to deal with the sin that is in creation. So the wrath of God, it is not bad news. It is hard news, but it is not bad news because it means that he loves us enough to set right all that was set wrong by our rebellion. And in that, then there's an expansiveness that we are called into. This is why, uh, why Jesus says, when that comes, stand up, lift up your head, your day of redemption is here. There's an expansiveness that we are called into. And the other thing that happens when we stand in this expansiveness, when we know that, that we are saved from wrath by wrath, when we understand that, that we are united to Jesus and therefore we have passed through the wrath of God that has fallen for our sins, uh, and that we know that we are those who are made new creations, children of God, that we are those who have an inheritance of delight, that he delights in us. We actually begin to have hearts for the other prodigal sons and daughters who have not been invited to this table. 
That's what begins to rise up in us. Because we know that we stand in a secure place. We know that we stand in the love and the delight of God. And we want to invite others in to know that delight and to know that spaciousness. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, there are things that we can read in Scripture that are hard for us to hear. I ask that you would reorient us, that you would orient our hearts and our minds, that we would understand that you love us enough to deal with injustice, that you love us enough to set right what was set wrong, that you love us enough to actually come as one of us to inhabit our darkness, that we might be delivered from what destroys and corrupts your beloved. And Father, would you shape our hearts, that we would stand in that delight, that we would know the joy of what it is to be those you call your children, sons and daughters of the King of Kings, that we'd no longer be self-conscious, but our eyes and our hearts and our hands would be looking for, longing for, and reaching out to the prodigal sons and daughters that need to be invited to this table. In Jesus' name we pray.